The following is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. More teaching like this can be found at graceteaching.net or searching Grace-Oriented Teaching wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here is our speaker. Um, So, last week we got down through in John 13... Last week we um, finished this example that he gave um, in verse uh, seven, down through verse 17 where he was talking to the disciples and he washed their feet. And we, so we went through this, which brings us down to, um, well, let's just read verse 17. He says, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. So it's not enough to know about this command of love and what that looks like in terms of serving, which is really what he's talking about at that moment but it's also necessary to do them. And he says, you're happy if you do them. You're happy if you serve in this way. And that brings us into verse 18. He says, but I am not talking about all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, the one eating my bread will lift up his heel against me. So what he's talking about is that this instruction, this, this example of service is not about all of the disciples. It's going to be about how many of them? Can we count? Twelve. Well. Oh no! Wait. Eleven. Eleven. Wait, because so Judas Iscariot is not. He's not. He's, he's going to go away. Yeah, he's not part of them. So that's why it's that's why it says in verse eighteen, "I am not speaking about all of you," because it doesn't apply to them. Which again is a good reminder for us that the Bible is not for everyone. Paul tells us in in, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 that the word of God, well, verse 17, that the word of God is for the man of God, or we'd say the person of God. That's what it's for, is to help us understand. The only part of the Bible that is valid for unsaved people is the gospel. Beyond that, the Bible doesn't serve a purpose to them. They turn it into a moralistic book. And there's a lot of people that would read what Jesus said in here in the example he gave, and they'll teach that some places among people that aren't saved, and people will go away going, yeah, we all need to be servants of one another. And it sounds like it's a good thing, but Jesus is saying it's not really for them. So this is... this is I, I think just to show you just how kind and gracious he is, that here he's at the very end, he's extending, he's still extending this... This opportunity here, you are. You can you can participate in this. You could you change your thinking right now at this time. But it's going to show him, or Judas is going to demonstrate for us. His mind was pretty set on accomplishing what he's doing. Yeah, I'm not, I was going to chase a rabbit trail, but we'll not do that. Verse nineteen. From then on, or from now on, then I tell you, before it happens, in order that you might believe when it happens, that I am. There's another one of those ego I me statements, uh, which is, from what? What's that idea? I am. What's that come from? Uh, Moses and the burning bush. Moses and the burning bush. And that, that has a different letter because it's I in Hebrew, so it's I, so it has an aleph, which kind of would be like an X for us on the front of the word. But his name, rather than having the aleph on the front, which would be I, has a yod, which kind of like looked like an apostrophe on the front of the word, and that would be he, 
Because when you talk about him, you don't say I, you say he. And every time they say that, essentially they're saying this same thing. He's the one who is. God is never the one who was. He is so much the one who is that he says, I can tell you what's going to happen before it happens. I know all these things. Nothing takes him by surprise. And he's telling them this because then he goes on and, well, we got a little interlude here with verse two. Any question at those two before we jump into the verse next? Verse 19? Yes. When he says, um, he says, I am to all of those in the room, and they know exactly what he's talking about. I don't know if those, if all those disciples fully understood or appreciated that. Let's just put it that way. I, I think... 11 of them would have agreed that he's God. If you would have said, what does that mean? They probably would have gone, uh, just like lots of Christians do today. So weren't the disciples with him in the garden when he... He hasn't been to the garden yet. Oh. The garden isn't going to happen yet until after this. They see him display that power. But they've seen him display power all the time. Remember when they were going across the lake in the boat? And Jesus just stands up and he says, be muzzled. And the wind stops and they go... Who is this? Right. <laughs> They're his disciples, you'd think. They'd seen him feed the 5,000. They'd seen people they, all day long come to get healed. And just people healed and demons cast out all day long. And yet they still, they still don't fully appreciate who is. But, uh, I, you know, to be real honest, when we've had people come to join the church, you know, we always have some questions we ask. And one of the questions is, is who is Jesus Christ? Tell us who Jesus Christ is. I don't want to say, do you think Jesus Christ is da-da-da-da-da-da? Yes, okay. No, we want to say, you tell me who Jesus Christ is. And if there have any issues, you know, when we talk about that to find out, because sometimes we don't always articulate our faith exactly the same way. Sometimes we trip over our tongue. And we've had people that, that they'll say, Jesus is God. But they'll say, but don't ask me to explain that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, seriously, we've had people that have said that. And I think that that's true for lots of Christians because lots of Christians haven't had somebody walk them thoroughly through the word of God and really demonstrate like Ben's been doing with the, his, with the adult class, uh, adult slash uh, high schoolers. Uh, um, people haven't had people walk them through that stuff in depth so that they don't know. So they might say, yeah, he's God, but I don't know what that means. And I think that that was probably somewhat true for his disciples here. Well, no one ever walked them through either. Not really. Yeah, Jesus had said things and he demonstrated it, but I think a lot of them were probably <clears throat> struggling. I mean, they're, they're looking at this man. I mean, how do you think about it? How do you put this together that you're walking home from Jerusalem back up to Galilee and you have, you're passing through Samaria? And this one that tells you he's God and he's done miracles, all of a sudden it's like, I am tired and I'm hungry. I need to sit down. And he sits at the well and they have to go down to get food. You go, how does that work? How does that work? That would be, seriously, those would be things trying to understand <clears throat> this contrast between his human nature and his divine. That I, I would say for me, I grew up, until, seriously, until I, I still say my favorite class, many classes I had in seminary was Christology, my favorite class. Because I'm telling you, I had so many questions about who Jesus Christ was uh, growing up. I, if you said, is he God? I would have said, absolutely. If you said, what does that mean? I would have gone, uh, I wouldn't have understood. I wouldn't have been able to explain that. Any other comments or questions? Okay, verse 20. We've got a 
little bit of an interlude here that is very important, I think, for us. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the one receiving whomever I send receives me, and the one receiving me receives the one having sent me. Now, first of all, let's see if you can understand. Why is this in state? Why is that statement important for you and I? Because we one that talks about like receiving the apostles. The church is built on the apostles, so that's like our foundation. They are the foundation. Okay, so you're heading in the right direction. <laughs> uh, how how were the apostles part of the foundation, or how were how was well, how was the foundation related to the apostles? They started the church. They so did that. Can you ask the question again? How were the apostles related to the foundation of the church? Yeah. How were they connected with the foundation? They were the ones that walked with Jesus. So once he was gone, they were the church. <laughs> okay, sure. They wrote the gospel. <laughs> they wrote the scriptures. They, yeah. <laughs> would you Would you and I know anything about the ministry of Jesus Christ if those men hadn't written this down? No. No. Granted, the Holy Spirit guided them to do this, but they're writing this down. So, there's there's question one. Question number two with this here in verse twenty is when it says the one. The one, the one receiving the one whom I send. The one whom I send. What's implied about, and I'm try, I tried to figure out how to word this question well. What? Well, he's, but I believe he's sending people is what he's going to be talking about. Okay. Receives, also receives me. What does it imply about the one he sent? What's imply about those individuals? If you send, let me ask you this. If he's sending him, what, what's like, what, what do you think that means? I'm sending them. Go away from me, get away from me, go over there. Is that what he's telling them? No. No, what's he doing? For a purpose. Sending them for a purpose. That's very important. So what does that imply about the person being sent then? If you're receiving them, it implies that they are doing what? Something. <laughs> Something. Specifically, they're doing the purpose for which he sent them. Sure. Yeah. In other words, if he sent them to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, sent them out, and they go out and do that, but instead all they do is go out and talk about sports scores with everybody wherever they go and put themselves up in comfy places that everybody else is, if that's all they do, then they're not doing what he said. So the implication in that statement is, I'm sending them and they are doing what I sent them to do. And therefore, it's not so much that you're just receiving them, you're receiving them because they're doing what I entrusted them to do. Does that make sense? Now let's go to chapter 17 and, and see this in chapter 17. I've got a couple of passages I want to look at to just kind of connect this here. Uh, chapter 17, and when we get there, Go down to verse 20. This is where you and I get in. If you if you didn't have verse 20 in here, you might deduce this. But otherwise, you just think he's talking about these 11 disciples. But in verse 20, he says, I do not ask. 
concerning these only, that is just concerning these 11, but also concerning the ones believing through their word into me. So we get in there because we believe through their word. We read the gospel. It's recorded in the scriptures. We read that. We hear it. Somebody maybe else read it. They spoke it to us. When I, when I heard the gospel, I couldn't read. I couldn't read when I heard the gospel. And so my mom tells me the gospel. And I hear this. I don't know. Peggy probably had read the gospel maybe in a Sunday school class, but it was her uncle that tells her the gospel when she's 16. See, So somebody spoke it to her. And, that, and think about that. Most of the people in the New Testament, they didn't, get, they didn't come to be believers because they read their Bibles, because they didn't have it. The Bibles weren't around then. They heard people speak it, which is kind of what Paul says in Romans 10. How shall they believe if they don't hear? How shall they hear if somebody doesn't proclaim it to them? If, if somebody's not sent, they're sent to proclaim it, he says. How shall they do that if they're not sent? So it does come back to this. So we come in here, but it implies that these people are actually communicating this message. Not only that, but if turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Look with me down again at verse 20 here. <clears throat> he gets done talking about some conduct that's inappropriate for believers. And he says in verse 20, but you have not learned the Christ in this way, or you have not so learned Christ. Then verse 21, if indeed you have heard him, and that if in the Greek is assuming it to be true. So if it is true, and I assume it is, Paul is saying, that you have heard him, heard whom? Christ, and you've been taught by him. So the Ephesians, keep this in mind now, where did Jesus operate? In Judea and Galilee, in this little narrow band, about 90 some miles area. That's pretty much where he stayed. Where's, the, where's Ephesus? I mean, if you looked at a map, Jerusalem and this whole region is down south there along the, that uh, east side of the Mediterranean. They're inland a little ways. To get to Ephesus, you cross way over through what we know as Turkey, and it's over in the western side of Turkey. It's a long ways from Jerusalem. Did Jesus ever travel up there? No, he didn't. He stayed in this region down there in Judea and Galilee, number one. Number two, had the people in Ephesus, had those people ever traveled down to Judea? I think some of them had, because there are about 12 disciples of John the Baptist that Paul meets when he goes there first. So they had been down there, but they had apparently never had met Jesus Christ from the statement that Paul from the, the, the interaction that Paul has with these people. So the whole point is, how did these Ephesians that don't get saved, they don't get saved until, how are we going to put this? They don't get saved until probably 20 to 25 years, about 22 years, 25 years after Jesus Christ has died and risen from the dead. How do these people up in Ephesus, 
how did they hear Christ and how were they taught by him? The by the apostles. See, if the apostles did what they were supposed to and they communicated what Jesus Christ entrusted them to, to say, then guess what? They were hearing Christ speak. They were hearing Christ speak. In fact, I would even say to this day, if you have anybody, this could be true for any of us in here. Get this, this could be true for any of us in here. If you take the word of God and you proclaim it, you share it with somebody else and you share it carefully, you want to be careful and you want to be accurate, you want to say, you want to communicate what it says, there is the potential that that person is actually as though they are hearing Christ speak what we're supposed to know. That's a really amazing thing. This is why Paul in Hebrews 4 says that the word of God is living. This book was finished almost 2,000 years ago, and he says it's living because, see, it's still today. It's not antiquated. It's not like, well, yeah, that doesn't work. What? No. No, you look at it and you... If you're a Christian reading the Bible with wide open eyes, you see, especially in the New Testament, where these things are actually written specifically for our conduct, and you read that, and you, you see our kind of issues today. You're going, man, we've still got this these problems. Yeah, we're driving cars and listening to the radio, but other than that, we've still got all this kind of stuff going on. And it still addresses how to, how to respond to that. That's an amazing thing. It's alive. So... I think that ought to be a challenge and encouragement to you and I both, that when you have that opportunity to share, teach the word God, to take it seriously and say, I'm potentially giving these people, if, if I communicate this accurately, giving them the potential to actually be hearing from God. If I botch it, no, they're hearing me. <laughs> I don't want to hear, I don't want them to hear me because, well, my wife has to hear me and she knows what I sound like. So when I'm kind of talking weird. You ever heard Brian Regan say that? Tells that story about getting a job at IHOP. And he goes from busboy to waiting tables. And the manager says, whatever you do. Or no, he's busing tables. That's what he's doing. He moves from washing dishes to busing tables. And his manager says, whatever you do, don't talk to anybody. And he goes, what? He goes, I've heard the things that come out of your mouth. He says, I don't want to try to explain that. <laughs> it's a really funny bit. But anyway, but. Yeah, Peg has to deal with that sometimes, and she's like, what in the world is going on in your head? I don't want people to be exposed to that. You guys probably get that enough if I'm sitting eating soup with you, you know. But uh, when I'm teaching the Word of God, I really want you to say, hey, this is what God says. So this is why we're over here in John 13, and Jesus is saying, the one that receives the one that I've sent, they're receiving me. And this is what I'm trying to help you see, that by putting this together, that he's... What does he mean by that? What he means is if I send you out and you do what you're supposed to do in the way that I want you to do it, saying the things I want you to say, they're actually receiving me. It's not so much really, It's in the end, it's not about me. It's not about the disciples. It's not about you. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what he's getting at. And this is very important. We've, we've got a couple of other passages that would kind of also kind of go along with this, but I just think that this is very important as he's talking about this because what he's doing here is he's really giving a background for these for for these disciples and their the ability of these disciples to appreciate the responsibility that he's going to entrust them because he just got he just got done talking to them about this example of servanthood 
just completed this example of servanthood, and then this comes out because it goes right hand in hand. Any other questions on 20? Yeah, and, and what? Well, because he's given them the instruction to serve, which he eventually is going to connect that to the commandment of love. So when he comes down here, what he's talking about, see, is if you're doing what you're supposed to do as a believer, you're carrying that out. Then when a person welcomes that, they're actually receiving Christ, not you. In other words, the whole point, it ought, they ought to look beyond the individual speaking or the individual doing the service or the work, and they ought to be able to look beyond that to Jesus Christ behind all of this. Is what it was the way it ought to be. Just as Jesus Christ says, and the one who receives me receives the one having sent me. And Jesus had said that. If you welcome me, it's not just me. It's it's God the Father behind me. Because he's the one that's telling me what to do. And he's telling me what to say. See. And we've already looked at that as we were looking at the signs. We saw, in fact, we spent, we spent a whole evening tediously going through a whole bunch of statements in John where Jesus says exactly that. That the Father was behind these things. That Jesus was doing the Father's will, not his own will. And likewise, it's not for me to figure out how to do this. It's not for me to try to solve these problems. It's a struggle. Let's put it this way. I said, I met with some pastors the other day. Um, we had a long pastors meeting on Tuesday. And it comes out time and again. As pastors, you're always trying to figure out how's a better way to do ministry? How's a better way to do ministry? How's a better way to do ministry? And, and I really appreciated um, one of the pastors there has got a, about three or four years, he's about three or four years older than me. And I'm sitting there kind of just holding my tongue, trying not to rock the boat too much. And I'm, but I'm like, uh. and he finally says, we just need to stick down to just really, just really thoroughly teaching the word. He says, this would solve a lot of our problems if we just kept teaching the word like we're supposed to. But the thing is, we don't do that. He says, we come up with catchy sermons and cool things and all of this stuff. And it doesn't really feed people. I'm just sitting there going, yes, Andy, go. <laughs> yeah. And I, I said, yeah, exactly, you know. It's an encouragement that uh, we want to do it God's way. And uh, we don't need to try to reinvent invent the wheel. Verse 21, then. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. First just seems like it's just stuck in there for just a weird place. Because it, it just, it's like it's interrupting what's going on with Judas here. I think I think what it is is it's it's kind of a parenthetical thought stuck in there as he's going to talk because he just kind of is putting this together with the with the fact I haven't said this to all of you so it's like he's saying I've given you an example of service but number one first of all first thing about this this isn't for all of you this is only for the believers you don't teach unsaved people how to live like Christians that's what he's saying about Judas then the second thing in there is he says, I'm telling you these things. This is the second part of this explanation. I'm telling you this stuff ahead of time so that when it happens, you'll know that I am. You'll know that I'm the one that knows all this stuff. Nothing takes me by surprise because I always exist. And third, that the wait, one... Wait, I'm telling you this now. I'm telling you what this? What's the this now? Well, that the one that's eating with me... Right. Is going to risk it because that's he was explaining that this isn't for everybody. And he right, specific, right. we and just in case 
the disciples don't get it, just in case we don't get it, he's talking about the one that's going to betray him. And then the, then the third thing that he brings in here is, he says, the, then the one that receives, the one that I sent is receiving me. So he's got three things that he's doing. This isn't for all of you. I'm telling you this so that you remember who I am, but always remember the one then that receives what? Receives what? Well, they're receiving this service. They're receiving what you're doing. Which, by the way, when you talk about serving like that and washing feet, if, if you're a pastor, if you're a Bible teacher of any sort, if you're doing those things, guess what? If you do it right, it is service. You should be looking at it as though that is one of the ways. That's one of the ways that God wants you to wash other people's feet, right? You serve them by carefully feeding them and handing the word of God. Well, let's put it this way. I don't cook. I shouldn't say I don't cook. I mean, I can. I know how to make soup and stuff like that. I know how to put a chicken on and cook it. But I don't cook normally. That's Peggy's a really good cook. And I don't come home when she cooks and I get to eat food and I don't look at it like, well, that was fun for you to do it, which is kind of true because she does like to cook. She does have fun doing that. But that she's serving. I mean, seriously. I mean, I look at that like she's serving. She's serving me by taking all that effort and time to come up with things and cook it and make it. And then, and then, you know, sometimes even put it in a bowl like she did today when I came home for lunch. I come in there and the bowl of soup's already. I was like, wow, this is ready to go. But that's service, see. And it's the same way if somebody is going to teach you the word of God, and I'm just using myself as an example, but this is true whatever your gift is or how, however you're serving. But when you're doing that, you put in the time to study so that you can you want to communicate it accurately, and then you take the time to serve that. that. That should be service. It's like cooking in the kitchen when you're studying, and then you take it out and set it on the table, and, that's the, and you can put it on the table. And I could have walked in and said, I'm going to eat that. She would have said, fine, you can have whatever you want to eat, but that's what I fixed for you. It'd be the same thing here. I could teach you the word of God and you could go, yeah, you know, I can't make you eat it, but I can put the food on the table, which is essentially what you're doing because you're a shepherd. You're leading the sheep to a pasture. Anyway, so those are the three things that he's saying, and they're all kind of connecting this, this they're all a response to this example of service that he gave them that we looked at last week. Of course, last week we spent most of our time talking about the washing thing, didn't we? What that was. But anyway, so now we come down to uh, this statement then in verse 21. It says, therefore, Jesus' spirit was troubled and he testified or said, truly, truly, I say to you that one from you will betray me. One from you will betray me. Word for word, <laughs> what Matthew writes over in Matthew chapter 26, it says exactly the same thing in the same context. Now, when you read that, well, let's read this and then ask this question. It says, and the disciples were looking at one another, perplexed about what he said. And it says, one of the disciples that was reclining, the one leaning against Jesus' bosom, the one whom Jesus loved, we believe that that's John, and it's not like, well, he loved me more than you guys. No, he just, for the point of, of his readers, he's trying to say, I was an object of, the, of, of my Savior's love. That's where he sees that. We all ought to be able to say that. And therefore, it says, and Simon Peter nods to this one, nods like a gesture, like, you know, we do that, like, you know, you do, if you're in a group like that and you don't want to, you go, hey, 
talk, talk to him. You him. say yeah, it. Yeah, wait, you, yeah, this is what he's getting, exactly. And asked him, what does he mean by this? And so then leaning back then, that one, that is Jesus, he's leaning on the breast of Jesus, which again, I don't think any of us have a problem with this. We understand they didn't sit on chairs around a table like we did. They had a very loaded platform. They had a bunch of pillows. They're all leaning on their left arm because the left arm's what your left hand's what you did your icky business with. So you're eating with your right hand and you lean against each other and you kind of, and they're probably unlike, um, unlike uh, the Last Supper, the painting of the Last Supper, they're all not all down one side of a table. They're around this table and they're all, but that wouldn't be a good painting if you saw the back of people's heads. So they paint it this other way and they're eating there. And so he's leaning up against Jesus. What? They posed. Yeah, there they did. Yeah, that's. The... <laughs> and so he, he's reclining. It says so he leans back then, leans back then against the breast of Jesus and says, "Lord, who is it?" Now the interesting thing about this is if we go over to Matthew twenty-six, you can keep your finger here. We'll be right back. Go to Matthew twenty-six. And I said that this is. Uh, that statement is is uh, recorded by Matthew word for word as as um, John has it, but in Matthew twenty six and in verse twenty one, and it says, and while they were eating, he said, truly, truly, I say to you that one out of you will betray me, and and being greatly grieved, they began to say, each one of them. Surely not I, there's a, a negative particle that you put in front of essentially a question. Not I, Lord. And the you start that question in the Greek with this little may particle that's like, not I, right? <laughs> in other words, they expect Jesus to go, oh no, not you. They expect Jesus to say, no, not you. That's what they're thinking. But he answered and said, well, the one having dipped with me his hand in the bowl, this is one. Well, they all were doing that. They had... They have these bowls sitting around. All these disciples are reaching out there and they're taking their bread and dripping it, dipping it in the in their the broth and eating this with them. But the thing is, none of it to me. What's always amazing when this happens over here in John 13, as he records it, it's the same event. We all understand that in Matthew 26. What doesn't happen when Jesus says this? What doesn't happen when Jesus says, "One of you is going to betray me"? What doesn't happen? Nobody in, volunteers that it's them. Nobody volunteers that it's them. <laughs> Judas doesn't say yeah, it's me. Yeah, Judas doesn't say yeah, it's me. That's right. And the rest of the disciples don't all look down the table going, Judas! Right. You know, you know, you know what that's like when you've been in a situation and somebody kind of mentions something and everybody looks at the one mm -hmm. person they know who would be likely to do that particular thing, whatever it might be. It might be a funny thing. Might be kind of a crazy thing, and everybody looks going, Yep, the only one at the table that'd do that would be him. Nobody does that. Nobody looks down the table and around wherever Judas is and go, Judas. None of them expect that. In fact, what their their whole thing is, it's not me. Their first their first response, it's not me. Sure, it's not me. Which means none of them are thinking about Judas. Well, but that then would include Judas. He's not thinking that either then at that time. I think Judas does know that. He uh -huh. does know what he's going to do because okay, he, so, that, so that. Not all of them are thinking it, but. Right. Everyone but, except Judas. But all the rest of them are doing this. Okay. That's right. Okay. Because there's that part there in the verse, you're probably coming to it, where it says, then Satan entered him and, and 
So, so yes, we're going to talk about that in just okay, a minute. But then, but that's a whole different thing than if Judas is just thinking of, of right. Of it. What what we what we find out is Judas has already before this supper he has already agreed with with the Sanhedrin oh. to betray Judas, Jesus. Doesn't he say in twenty five? Surely you don't mean me. That's what because I was saying. Because oh. he's saying that. Yeah, well, I think he's, I, and I'm just going to tell you what I think on this, and this is a place where I may be disagreeing with the, with the consensus, but I think he, he does know it because he has already made plans. We're told that he already has made plans with the Sanhedrin to betray Jesus for a certain amount of money. So what's, so I think he, what he says here is he's saying this to, uh, that's what you were talking about. That's the statement you were talking about. Or did others? No, it's it's the one back up in verse twenty two where where all the rest of these disciples it says they all yeah, began yeah. to say surely not I. Oh yeah. And so then, uh, let's read verse twenty three. So then this uh, is Matthew. This is back mm -hmm. in Matthew twenty six twenty three, and therefore replying he said the one dipping then his hand with me in the bowl this is one to betray me indeed the son of man is going just as it was recorded concerning him but woe to the man that one by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for him to never have, for that man never to have been born. Born, born, sorry. And Jesus then replying, or Judas then replying, the one betraying him said, surely it is not I, rabbi. And he says to him, well, you said it. Now you said it normally as a yes, but he's saying, yes, it is you. And you know it's you, Judas. And we're going to see that if we go back over to Let's go back over to John. Well, why does why does Judas then say, surely not I? If yeah. He knows it's him. I think he does know it's him. And I, this is, again, th this is my take on that statement, is that Judas is trying to say the same thing everybody else does. Uh, what? He doesn't want to reveal himself. <laughs> yeah. Right. Because it tells us, let's go back to John 13. Let's go to verse 2 in John 13. And it tells us, before all this happens, it says, the supper taking place, the devil already having thrown it into the heart that Judas Iscariot should betray him. So before the supper even happens, this is already something that's been settled. The only thing that's going to happen now is Judas is going to leave to go get these people and lead them to Jesus, to lead them to where Jesus is oh, going to yeah. be. So, we go back then over here, and uh, let's see, back in John chapter 13, and Jesus said, it's the one, it's the one that, uh, let's go to verse 26, it says, and Jesus then replies, that is the one that I will dip the morsel and I will give it to him, therefore having dipped the morsel, he takes and gives it to Judas, Simon Iscariot, he dips it. The thing that's crazy about this, he dips it and gives it to Judas, and everybody's going, oh, he just gave it to Judas. Oh, I, yeah, Judas, uh-huh. No, I keep reading. And after the morsel, it says, then Satan entered into that one. And this is verse 27. So during supper, when the devil had already, already put, put it into, into the heart, the heart Jesus, so 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 Satan has already tempted Judas. Him. He's already put the idea in there. Judas is already... If we put this together with all the other scriptures, Judas has already planned, has all this planned, but it's not until this moment, we'll come back and deal with this in just a minute, 
but Satan is now going to enter Judas. In other words, Satan is going to guarantee that Judas doesn't change yeah. his mind. Yeah. Some people chicken out, change their mind. And it's just so wild to me. So Satan obviously doesn't know the plan. That's right. Because if he knew the plan, he wouldn't be making sure that Judas follows through. Yeah. And we're going we're gonna to touch on a verse that's going to tell us exactly that. Well, so part stupid. of it. There's, I, and I'm going to tell you one other thing about the whole situation with Judas. As I read the account, is that it's, it tells us that when Judas sees that Jesus is going to be condemned, then he's grieved, and then he tries to take the money back and return it to the people that paid him. And there's a reason for that, and this is the way I understand it. I, because of that very thing that he sees when Jesus is not going to be is going to be condemned, that he does this. I I think that 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 we're told that in in the account of of Christ's betrayal and everything, because Judas in his mind is thinking Jesus will get off. I'll make thirty pieces of silver, and these leaders will hear Jesus. They'll put him on trial, and they'll find out. He is this great guy. I don't, Jesus, Judas doesn't understand he's God. But I think Judas thinks, well, he could be a good king. And I could be the treasure for this new kingdom, which would be really great. Because we already were told back in chapter 12, he was helping himself from the bag. Wouldn't it be nice to help yourself from an even larger bag? Well, and at this point, aren't they still imagining, like, they're still expecting that he's going to be, be king. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All of them, not just they Judas. Don't, they don't yeah. understand or believe or whatever that he is going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Keep your finger here and everybody flip over to Luke 18 for just a minute. This is about a week before, before all of this happens, a little over a week. Luke chapter 18. And let's go to verse 31. And it says, in taking the 12, he said to them, look, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that's written through the prophets concerning the Son of Man are going to be completed. For he will be betrayed to the Gentiles and they will treat him horribly and they will treat him arrogantly and they will spit upon him and they will whip him and they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. <laughs> How much clearer can you be? I mean, that's pretty plain, but verse 34, and they understood none of these things. Not one for this word or this utterance was hidden from them, and they were not able to know what was being said. Three times, three different ways, he tells us not one of his disciples got what he said. I, I, it's so plain. But has anybody ever told you something? And my poor wife has to deal with this with me. She sometimes tells me something that is really plain. And then I, and she goes, that's not what I said. But see, sometimes my mind is so set in this way that when she tells me this, I take this thing and I somehow try to fit it over here. And that's not at all what she means. And she looks at me cross-eyed like, what is the matter with you? Well, I think that that's what's happening with the disciples on top of the fact that it said it was hidden from them. So it even makes it worse. They not only, they themselves can't put it, because that word understand in the Greek, literally, is they can't put it together. That's it's like, they, uh, what? Just hiding it from me. Yeah, right. That's it. No. No. <laughs> no, no. Ronnie. So, in that verse you just read, 
The first part of that, he's, uh, oh, uh, he says, listen, we are going up to Jerusalem. So he's he's using that pronoun we, mm -hmm. me and all you guys. Right. Okay, but then he switches the pronoun and he doesn't say, I am going to be handed over to the Gentiles and I'm going to be mocked and all that. He doesn't use first person. He's He says, he. Because at the end of verse 31, he says, the son of man. Everything written but, about the son of man. man. So he's going to speak about himself in the third person. First. Yeah. Yeah. But is that um, because he knows they're not going to understand until later? Is that? I mean, why doesn't he just come out and say, "This is me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna die." Well, he has said he actually has told them that otherwise, and and when that happened, then Peter stands up and he goes, he says, "Uh, uh." He, yeah, his big sense. Yeah, he says, he says, "Lord, no, be satisfied with the way it is," and he, and that's when Jesus Christ says. Satan, get behind me. Okay, but in this one, he's talking in what is they the third person or something? Right. Yeah. To them, uh, because over here it says, and they didn't understand. Right. But he switched the pronoun thing to refer to what the prophecies said. Right. So right. That would be confusing because I don't think it is confusing for them because the, he has called himself the Son of Man through much of his earthly ministry for these disciples, so they would have understood that what he was talking about. So, the, so they, but they, they did but understand they, at that time that he was talking about himself, but they still were thinking, "Now something's this isn't going to happen." Yeah, because this because this doesn't fit the whole scenario. The whole scenario is you become king, king right. not suffer and die. Uh -uh. So they're like. I don't know what this means. So that's the part that they don't understand. Right. So let's go back to John chapter 13. Again, and we saw that, um, well, let's put in, uh, let's see, well, verse 27, and after, and after the morsel, after the morsel then, Satan entered into that one, and therefore Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But no one that's reclining then knew what Jesus spoke or what he meant by this. For some of them were thinking, well, he's the one that has the money bag. Uh, Judas has that one. And so Jesus was telling him, go buy something that we have need of for the feast or give something to the poor. In other words, that's their understanding. What you do do quickly is like, go and make a payment. Go pay, pay buy something we need. This is what they think. Again, even at this point, when he hands him this, this, this bread that's been sopped, none of them go, oh, Judas, of course, he's always been the oddball. No, he, I don't think he looked like the oddball. He didn't, he, he so perfectly fell in line with the, what the rest of these disciples were doing that nobody suspected him. In fact, if anything, they were concerned with themselves. It's not me. It's not me, right? They're not going, not me. They're going, not me. It's a question with a negative answer going, I want you to say no. That's what they wanted to say. So how could they, like, hear Jesus say, it's the one that I give the dipped bread to, and he dips the bread and gives it to Judas, and he just says, this is the one, and he gives it to him, and, and they don't get it. I, again, I think it's just, it's, some of it has to do with blindness. There's a good possibility that Jesus has actually handed bread out to these other people. I mean, they did, he did, um, or a, uh, inaugurate, I don't know how else, what better word to use, the, the Lordian table or communion uh, at this same meal, and he's already passed that bread around. So they so they might have been confused with that. 
Well, yeah, he did that before. I think but, he does. But, anyway, but he does maybe this, not. It says right. He says that, and then he dips I know. it and gives it to him. But I think that what again, what it's demonstrating is that these guys, none of them are are looking at Judas as though he's the culprit. And so when he says this, they're just so confused by by what's happening because it is so beyond what they're expecting that they just kind of go, no, not that. It's not, they they just don't think that way. I want to know why Matthew isn't the treasurer. But that's true. That's maybe that was because he was a tax collector. They didn't trust him to be. I don't know. Okay, and then verse thirty, and this is where we'll we'll pause here. Verse thirty, it says, "Therefore, taking the morsel, that one went out immediately. Immediately, and what does it say? And it was night. night. And then they took what?" And then they do that. So, but he says it was night. And the significance of that in the Gospel of John, the idea of night and dark, light and darkness, um, which we've looked at. We've seen that in the Gospel of John, the significance. Let's go back to John 3. Let's go back to John 3. We go to verse 18. Well, let's go to verse 19. We'll skip over verse 18. It says, And this is the judgment that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light, for their works were evil. They weren't what they were supposed to do. Their works caused misery. For everyone that practices evil or worthless things, he changes to a different word now, phalon, he says, he, uh, um, uh, oh, except the one practicing worthless things, I'm sorry, I just lost my place here, hates the light and does not come to the lights lest his work should be reproved or proven for what they are. He doesn't, he, he wants to think he's okay. This is what the world is. They want to think, yeah, I know I'm not perfect. I know I've got problems. I know I do bad things, but it's not that bad. It's what they want to think. But in reality, they don't, they just practice worthless things. Everything that they do with their life, in fact, I just had somebody ask me this question just last week out of uh, Romans 2, verse 8 over there, where it says, and this is, and the thing is, is, and I've told you this before, I wouldn't know this, um, but it's like Peggy, when she was going through cancer, there were two ladies, two Mormon ladies that came by and brought stuff to her, brought some food stuff to her, brought, one of them brought a tea set and brought a couple books to read and and they'd gone through cancer too, see. So they were like, you know, hey, sister, we've all shared cancer together. And so they came by and did, and you know, and I thought, well, that's really nice. That is, and I appreciate it. I'm not, I'm not going to look at that going, oh, that was mean of them to do that. No, it was a nice thing. But you know what? I know that Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that the unsaved, when they, even when they do good works, he says they do it out of selfish ambition. There's something selfish even in their good works. You and I are the only people that have the potential to do something that absolutely is genuinely good. The unsaved, even when they do it, and I've had people that disagree with me on that, and I'm saying, I'm stuck with Romans 2.8. tells us unsaved people, even when they do good, I don't deny that they do, but somewhere in there, there's some selfishness. And I can see that because when I do good, I know that I easily can struggle with a little note of selfishness in there going, 
Oh, chalk went up from TM. Oh, don't think that way. But I already did. <laughs> See? And so I think it's important for us to understand, you know, when we're the, the way they operate. So they hate the light. They did. This is why they didn't like Jesus. He came down there. This is, he's going to say this a couple times in the upper room. He says that the world, they hated him because of the things he said and the way he acted, because it really showed their, showed them up in the works that they were doing. So, and we've already talked about this, so just in a nutshell, remember light is a visible, the life of God, eternal life, being made visible by activity. Darkness is where that light is, or that life is not visible because there's inactivity. And it could be that life's not visible because the life is absent, or because, as with some of John's readers over in 1 John, we're not doing it. We're being we're misdirecting our love. Now, one last thing then, then I want to take a little time, and I'm I'm going to ask you guys for a vote on this at the end. On this, I was talking to Peggy about this earlier today. But in back in John chapter 13, and go to verse 27. We kind of we kind of passed by this verse very briefly. It says here in verse 27, it says, And after the morsel then Satan entered into him. So, so here's a question for you to think about. You don't have to answer this out loud. But can Satan or his angels, fallen spirits, can they inhabit believers? Can they, we, we, they call it, the, the word that in popular lingo within Christendom is to say um, demon possession. Demon well, this possession. was before... He died on the cross. Yes. And, this, and, and, and then when he came back and he said, I leave with you the Holy Spirit, right? Mm -hmm. So this is, that with all the demon possession that was happening before Jesus Christ's crucifixion, yes. Mm -hmm. Right? Yes. But the question is, can Satan or his demons inhabit believers? No. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's not possessed. I said it but you, you, well, you were. Can, can they dwell like a non believer now? I would say they can. Yeah, I would say they, they can. The Holy and you were giving, you were giving the reason why they can't, yes. because yeah. we have the Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. That is, that is one of the reasons that we can't, exactly. Um, and that, and see, I'm glad we have a consensus here on this. And I just say that because I'm surprised sometimes how many people are believers. They don't know about that. They're not, they're not sure. And maybe it's the church they've gone to or Bible study they sat in or something they heard on the radio. I don't know. I think it's because in America we ignore Satan and his demons altogether. Yeah. Well, we had, we had a friend, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago that gave us a book. Oh, you got to read this book. It's on prophecy. Well, what it was was a guy making up prophecies. He was cut. The whole book were his prophecies. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. Well, within like the first one or two pages, he saw, I saw coming up out of, coming out of hell. Okay, number one, demons and Satan don't come out of hell. They don't go to hell. They go to hell when they're punished in the future. They rove around on the earth in the heavens. There's no demons, and Satan is in hell today. That's a place of torment and punishment for them. So number one, I was like, okay, he doesn't understand that. Number two, 
He says, I saw, and he starts naming off all these demons and what they're responsible for. I see a demon of lust. I see a demon of adultery. I see a demon of drunkenness. And I was thinking, those three, What's adultery, um, lust, and well, I'm assuming lust, he meant sex, lust. All three of those, those aren't satanic. They're not from Satan. Scriptures attribute those to your own sinful nature. They're part of your bent flesh. They're not satanic. But again, I didn't understand that. I was 20 years old before I understood that Satan's temptations are different than my flesh's temptations. And boy, I tell you, it made a world of difference in my Christian life. It's the first time I was ever able to have any kind of real victory over things that I've been struggling with for years. Okay, so having settled that, See, I, I, have, I have questions here that I was that I was going to ask, but everybody, you're all uh, we've got a good consensus, so we don't have to do this. But I, but um, do you, if you've got a if you've got a spiritual problem, do you go to your pastor or your elders or some other spiritual people and say, please lay hands on me and cast this demon out? Well, I never have. Yeah. Well, I never have. First of all, we don't have the demon in us to cast out. Right. But there are people, real Christians, I think because of poor teaching, that they're of the opinion that if I've got this spiritual problem and I'm trying to overcome this spiritual problem and they don't know the, how God tells us to overcome it, they're trying to figure out how do I overcome it. So what do they end up doing? Well, somebody says, oh, you got a demon of whatever fill-in-the-blank problem you have. Well, it's and interesting, this, though, Tim, because... Like you say, it's probably due to poor teaching or just lack of teaching altogether. Because even up until maybe a couple of years ago, I had never heard the enemy broken down into Satan, of course, but also your flesh and the world systems. It always is just, you know, the enemy, the enemy, and automatically Satan. your yeah. brain goes to Satan because mm -hmm. um, he's the bad guy. And I, and I grew up with that. I, but I always knew those three, the flesh or the world, the flesh and the devil. But they were all just the same thing. You just, it's just like they were all mashed together and there was no distinction. I hear a lot of pastors say things like, well, Satan was trying to get me, you know, or, and I mean, that can, it can be true, but he's not everywhere. He's not omnipresent. You know what I mean? He, there might be demons and, 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 you know, lies and stuff that have been. But I don't believe he's he's everywhere. I don't believe that you know he just can't do that. So That's I, right. I hear a lot of people say that. Oh, it was, it was that the devil was trying to yeah. get me to do that. And I, I and I would say I would just say in connection with that with the thing that they say, there there is a rightness to it, in the sense that um, if you would have gone back to World War II and you would have said Eisenhower over there or Patton, you know, with his, with his tanks. But was Patton actually out there driving the tanks? No, he's the one that's in charge. He's the general that's telling all these tank teams what they're supposed to do. And I think also then when you come to scripture, it's Satan and his, his spirits, his angels, these demons that they're actually carrying out a lot of this work. What do you do when, so let's, so, so let's just go to this next question here. Again, we're, this this is kind of a uh, we're taking chasing a rabbit trail over here that I was thinking about looking at this, but um, when you deal with Satan, how does God tell you to respond to Satan? Then what did He tell you to do? Truth, word, word of God. 
What? The word of God. Okay. So the Stand firm. Ephesians 6.1? What's, what, well, I, okay. I, I would just read. We're going to go to Ephesians. We're going to go to Ephesians 6. I'm going to read another verse that I was going to, I don't go to, usually I don't go to Ephesians 6 right away. I usually go to James 4, and you don't have to go over there. Because James 4 says, um, 4 verse 7, it's, uh, no, no, yeah. Sub, yeah, therefore submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James doesn't tell, but James doesn't tell you how to resist. You resist by by putting yeah. So let's read through this in verse ten. We'll read through this passage just to remind ourselves. So six ten, it says, "For the remainder, be empowered in the Lord." And by the might of his strength, put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand. And that word stand is a form of the word that's used for resisting the devil in James 4, 7. Anyway, and against his the methods of the devil. And this again, this is another thing that a lot of Christians, they don't know what his methods are. They have no idea. Again, like, we, like a number of us were all agreeing. It, it's just all mashed into one thing. Verse 12. Because our wrestling match is not against flesh and blood. And in the significance of that context, in the context of the Ephesian church, you always think people are the problem. If Lewis would just get his act together and do things right, my life would be fine. Right? Is that the way we think? Yeah. What? Yeah, yeah. But he says it's not against flesh and blood. So when you so when you are in those relationships with other people, other believers in particular, because I think it's largely in the context of the Ephesian church, but it could be unsaved people. Those people ultimately are not the major, they're not really the problem. Your, your wrestling match is with rulers and authorities and world powers of this darkness, spiritual forces of evil that are in the heavenlies. In other words, exactly what Lewis was saying. It's not Satan is not personally showing up and attacking me. But he's maybe directing or sending these all these one of these others to to throw something into my mind to make me think of that to get me going down a certain path. So he says you got to recognize where the real enemy is. Verse thirteen. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Only after verse ten, remember that you're empowered. You have to have this, and the power. Obviously, I think we all understand it's here. It's mental power. I don't need power here and I don't need it in my back to resist Satan. I need it here to keep this mentally together while I'm dealing with a satanic attack. Because a satanic attack is mental. It may be because of a physical problem. Maybe I'm like, maybe I'm like Job. Maybe I lost all of my fortune and I lost all of my kids tragically. That's a horrible external thing that happens, but it would be devastating to your soul. Oh, they're just trying to call in the coyotes. Huh? Oh, okay. But the other part of that is, what was the second thing that Satan did to Joe? Or Joe? Struck him with boils. So maybe you've got a physical thing you're dealing with. Maybe you got a physical, maybe you got a health problem. And Satan can use that health problem as a basis of a temptation, like he did with Joe. So he says, you need this strength mentally to keep it together in the midst of maybe a, a great loss like Joe went through, or a major health problem, or other things that Satan is involved in. So, and he goes on. 
And he says in verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand in the evil day. And the reason it's an evil day because it's a day that Satan's attacking you. He doesn't attack me every day. But when he does, that's a day that's painful. It's a day that's hard doing that. And having done all, then stand. Same word, that word stand is, is again, it's a form of this word resist. And so what he's saying, stand therefore having your, and I'm just going to blow through these really fast. Uh, I'll try to. But having then your loins girt with truth. A lot of Christians have problems in their spiritual life because we don't see things for what they are. We don't want to be honest with the situation. We keep telling ourselves lies. We keep kidding ourselves. This is fine. It's good. It's okay. In reality, we need to see it honestly, the situation. We need to see honestly maybe the part in which we're culpable because of expectations or whatever. This goes back to standing in Florida. Truth about, what is real truth about you being Christ? And those are truth too. And those things are going to come out down below here too. Yeah, you can't, if you, if you don't want to recognize who the enemy is and what he's doing, you're not going to do very well. You have to see it the way God wants you to see it. Second of all, he says, you take up the breastplate of righteousness. You need to recognize your only righteousness you have is what you have with, because of God, because you have in Jesus Christ. You have no righteousness outside of that. If, otherwise, you'd be like unsaved people. That righteousness comes out of selfish ambition. It might be righteous. Your neighbors might all say it's righteous, but God looks at it and it's, what did he look at Israel's righteousness as? As filthy rags, he says. Verse 15, and putting on putting on your feet uh, as shoes a preparation of the good news of peace. Jesus Christ is our peace. He's our peace with God and he's our peace with each other. Um, well, we've talked about this here and many times we've gone over this, but I can guarantee if you're not getting along with another believer, if you just start learning to say, they are seated at the Father's right hand, just as I'm seated, we are seated there together, it would go a long way in helping tame your mental distraction and frustration that you have with that individual. And I've learned to do that. I've learned to practice that. And you know one of the best things that comes out of it? I keep my mouth shut and don't say that thing that in the moment I want to say that actually is just like pulling the pin. It just, oh, it does, that does not go well when you do that. So then it says in verse 16, and in all of these, taking up the shield of the faith. That is, you need to look at the promises that God has made to you as a believer that make up your Christian life. That's what the faith is. It's all these promises. God's made so many promises specifically to us as New Testament Christians. And Satan doesn't want you to look at any of those. He doesn't want you to think about any of those promises. He doesn't want you to recognize that you have, and I would, one of those aspects of faith in the book of Ephesians that's big earlier is that we all have absolute access to God. There's no, there's no believer that has better access to God than any other. And then he says, by which you're able to quench the fiery darts of the evil. Notice it's, this starts, uh, one of my professors always said, it starts out as a wrestling match, but as it goes on, eventually Satan starts to back off a little bit. Now he's shooting darts at you, throwing, shooting arrows at you from a distance. Whether that's exactly what Paul meant or not, I just always remember him pointing that out. But he goes on, and he says, and then taking up the helmet of your salvation. And how does Paul describe our salvation in the book of Ephesians? He says, for by grace, grace you're saved. You're not saved because you were better than anybody else. And yet, what's one of the things that Satan attacks us with? It starts with P. We think of it as like, what? 
pride, pride, pride. Grace just, grace just kicks pride all <laughs> out the door, you know. And pride creates a lot of problems, a lot of conflict between people. I mean, you imagine the damage it would do to my relationship with Lewis if if I thought, <laughs> Lewis, no, I am so much better than him. Would that even if I never vocalized that, would that? probably work out some way in the way I'd interact with you. Yeah, I probably wouldn't. It probably would be hurtful. But if I look at this and say, hey, my salvation is by grace, completely by grace, completely, completely undoes that. And then the last one, he says, and the last thing, and um, and then the, uh, oh, pardon me, and the sword of the spirit, which are the, um, Oh, I see. I keep looking at the wrong verse. I was like, I can't find these words. And the sword of the spirit, which is the utterance of God, he switches from logos to rhema. It's an utterance. And I would say those utterances are, those are specifically the things, those good words from back in chapter one, the way this letter started, chapter one, verse three, they're the good things God says about us in Christ. You just start thinking about all those good utterance that God has. And in connection with all that, he tells us in verse 18 that we, there ought to be prayer and supplication. That is, there ought to be worship. You ought to be, the whole time that you're dealing with Satan, you need to remember who your God is. Don't, because God, Satan wants you to do everything, but think about and remember who your God is. And then you ought to also be, you ought to be supplicating. You ought to be talking to God. And not just about yourself. He's going to tell you eventually you're even going to do this for other people. And so, I, you know, if this is how you resist Satan, none of this implies that you go and ask somebody to lay hands on you and cast a demon out. So again, going back to the main point that we started with in John 13, is Satan comes to, Satan, to Judas because Judas was never, never really a believer to begin with. We saw that way back in John 5. Is or that John, to say that Judas could not have come into Matthew? What is the and I don't think Satan could have because Jesus is, Jesus said, remember when we went over this last week, he says, you all are clean through the word that I've spoken. Well, not all of you. And then he said, because, because one of you is a devil. So I, so I believe the rest of them were Old Testament believers. And therefore being Old Testament believers, Satan could cause problems to them. Like he can cause problems to us, but he never can enter them and his demons don't enter them. First um, John five, when he says. Um, so then, for us, it's more the more than the fact that we have the Holy Spirit because they didn't have the Holy Spirit, but they were still protected from that. Yeah, I would say the Holy Spirit is, as Lewis said, that is one of the reasons that we have God the Spirit in us. Right. That's one of the reasons that that the demons can't get us. The other one is in First John five, um, and this isn't the so, but I. But this is the one I was thinking about. Um, he says that, um, verse 18, we know that everyone born from God, he does not sin continually or as a way of life, but the one, uh, but the one being born out from God, he, he keeps him and the evil one does not hopto, doesn't 
touch him. So Satan can do things with us, but he can't really touch us in the what, way that... What, where was that? John that's 5, verse 18. 1 John 5, 18. John. 5, 18. And it's connected with our being uh -huh. a born one from God. So, so, and how, how, how did you become, who were you born from? Who does the scripture say you're born from? God. Yes, but specifically from the Father. Oh, the I birth see, yeah. is specific. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The spirit is the one that affects it, but it's from the Father. From the Father. Okay. And when you're born from the Father, God the Father indwells you. So now we've got two persons of the Godhead. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, but we also have God the Father indwelling us, which causes us to be born ones from God. And the evil one doesn't touch it. So the evil one can attack. The evil one can... I mean, earlier in the letter, he says, you guys are strong and you've overcome the evil one. The young men had, but not all the believers in the church had. So you can learn to overcome Satan, but you still can't be touched by him. You're going to have to learn to overcome him. You're going to have to learn how to be victorious over him. So anyway, I just wanted to kind of take that little excursus there tonight on this because I have run into a number of people that, that have this idea that that Satan and demons can attack us, and they think that the way you get your spiritual problems taken care of is get demons cast out. But that's not what you need. What you need to learn to do is discern, is this satanic? Is this my flesh? Is this the world? And if it's satanic, you put on the armor of God. You mentally walk through these truths. You need to mentally secure these truths when Satan is trying to confuse your mind with lies, which is essentially what he does. That's his number one method. According to scripture, he has methods, but his number one method is going to start with deceiving you. He's got to get you to see things inaccurately. Okay, you were raising your hand a minute ago, and I. Okay, so we were just talking about that that scripture that we read about how we're born of God. Okay, well, then how does that work with the disciples if they're Old Testament believers? Are those ones? That are they weren't, but I just believe that. As Jesus, or because he says that you're clean, I believe that they're protected from that. Okay. That's that's part of their Old Testament salvation. There's no evidence in the Old Testament that people, that believers were demon-possessed there. Some people point to Saul, King Saul, uh -huh. but it says that there was an evil spirit that troubled him, but it doesn't say that the evil spirit indwelt him. Oh. So... Okay. Every one of us probably knows what it's like to have an evil spirit come and take advantage of a bad situation and trouble you, and they stir your mind up. Mm -hmm. I, I had literally I had to deal with that the other day because I had a little thing that had happened, and I was just like, oh, I just was really, and it's just like every time I kind of get my mind straightened out and calmed down pretty soon, it's just like Satan's one's going, well, what about that? What about that? And you're like, oh, and you just sit there and go, oh, that person, and you're just thinking about this. It just kind of keeps shooting it in there, reminding you of this. So, yeah, I, every one of us, I think, knows what it's like to be agitated and troubled um, by, by one of Satan's minions. So what do we do with, I mean, they're not talking about possession, demon possession in this, in James 5, but what do we do with this passage of let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him and that has to do, let's go look at that, because we've got, we've got like four individuals there in James 5 that are having various problems. And 
Let's see. So verse three, you've got somebody that's suffering evil. Uh, and so let him let him worship. In other words, a person that is going through a suffering thing, they need to worship and focus on God. Then verse 14. Yeah, uh, James 5, 13. Okay. okay. You said three. Oh, I three? Oh, I'm so sorry. I was like, three is talking about corroded bit. Just say it like cool. three or four times. You know? <laughs> five, 13, five, 13. It's so, so, and I can tell you, you've seen my Bible. You know why I get that messed up. It's because of the way they chose to number the verses in here, and it messes me up all the time. Anyway, but so so the first thing is, well, what my Bible does is okay, it puts the chapter first, and then it puts the verse after, and I'm always looking at that verse and thinking that's the chapter. I get it messed. I don't know why I do that. He says, but so you have a person that's suffering, they need to worship. Worship is really good for people that are suffering. Verse 14, or now you have somebody that's sick. He says they're physically sick. He says, let them call the elders of the church and let them pray over him and let them, and this word anoint is not the word creo, like Christ being anointed, but literally it's to smear down, literally smear down with olive oil in the name of the Lord. I, I, I know this doesn't sound very spiritual, but I, the spiritual aspect is they're worshiping over him. In other words, sometimes when you're sick or you know somebody that's really physically ill, you need somebody to come and you need someone you need to listen to somebody else worship because sometimes you can be hurting so bad it's hard for you to even think straight. I have had that happen maybe one time briefly in my life. I don't know what that's like, but I've watched other people go through that. And then the second thing they're doing is they're not just coming and worshiping over them, but then the elders come and obviously I think that this is a man men with men. I think you'd have the ladies do this. But I think they literally are, essentially, they're giving the person a rub down. They're sick, and one of the things they're doing is that they're just kind of taking olive oil and rubbing it all over them, which is yeah. a thing they did for health. Why aren't we doing that? Massage. <laughs> Massage. Yeah. That's the, way I, that's the way I understand what they're doing. And, so he, ne and he never says anything's going to take care of that guy. He says it's, it's providing some physical relief from the pain for a moment, but the worship is going to help with the, the spiritual, the mental pain. And then the next part, verse 15... And the vow of faith will save a, and now we have a different kind of sick one. This isn't an asthenia sick. This is a camno sick. Oh, it's a, this is a, is a language disparity. It is, and they translate it sick, but that second one, that's a person that's mentally weary, is the word. It's a person that is mentally exhausted, is that camno that's used here. And it says, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has done any sins, they will be forgiven him. In other words, this guy actually has a vow it's a different word for, it's not pray, it's a vow, it's a UK. He's either he has made a vow and hasn't followed through on it, made good on it, or he ought to make a vow, which I don't think that that's what it is, because I don't think we're supposed to do that today. But there's a possibility maybe he is to make a vow to make right something that he hasn't followed through on. And because of that, and I don't know if any of you have ever done that, but I've had things where I've messed something up with somebody and I don't want to deal with it, and I don't want to deal with it, and I don't want to deal with it, and the longer I put it off, the bigger that weight mentally gets on me. And he just and James is just saying, that person just needs to vow and make that right, and it'll take care of that mental weariness. And if there is a sin, you can, you can do things that are kind of wrong towards others without it being sin. But he says, if there is a sin involved in what they have, that too will also be forgiven in that process. So we actually got somebody suffering that just needs, they, they ought to start worshiping. 
we got a person that's sick. They, they maybe need someone to worship for them and oil them down or rub them down with oil. What do we do today? We we come over and we bring it. Wouldn't you, it would. It would. Really. What do we do? Yeah, you bring them soup. Yeah. In other words, chicken noodle soup. It's just so everyone knows. I would way rather you come and worship while you rub me with oil. Okay. Yeah. Maybe not olive oil. <laughs> even olive oil. I don't care. I have lots of oils to choose from. You don't even have to bring the oil. <laughs> And, and I have, I don't, I don't want to tell this story over and over again. But the head of our deacon board, when we lived in Iowa City, I, the night that the 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 uh, um, Gulf War started, I remember coming and he came in, and, and Dean was always such a positive guy. I mean, he was so kind and so encouraging. But that I tell you, that night he comes into to Bible study, and he's just like, just like everybody had drained everything from the guy. And, and the, we'd all break up into pairs all over the auditorium and pray. And he's just sitting there by himself. And I went over and I said, Dean, are you okay? And then he just breaks down and he tells me, but he was in the Vietnam War. He was unsaved. He was an unsaved guy. He didn't get saved until after he came back to the States. And he, watching that Gulf War break out, just took, took him back to everything about the Gulf War. And I'm just sitting there listening to him. What? Or not the Vietnam War, the Vietnam War. And I'm sitting there listening to this, and I'm just, I'm trying to listen. But at the same time, I'm like, God, I don't even know how to help. And then God says, he just needs to remember who I am. And so I prayed. And I did ask for a couple of things, but I spent most of my time just worshiping God. I got a huge hug from Dean that night because he needed someone else to worship. He needed to hear somebody worship God. And I don't know how long we went. Everybody else was finished. Dean and I are still back there because it was just, it, you know. And that, that I think that was the very first time I realized how vital it is sometimes for somebody else to worship for your benefit. It's not just always that you you can't always do it. Sometimes, sometimes somebody else needs to do it for you. So anyway, that's the that's the situation here. Doesn't say the sick guy is going to get better. The only guy that's maybe going to get better is the mentally weary person in verse 15. And that's basically because they kind of need to settle the situation they've got themselves into. Okay. Okay, one more question that's totally unrelated, but you'll be able to help me. Ephesians 4, verse 26. Ephesians 4, 26. 4, 26? Correct. What does it say? Okay, so what's, what's the question? Ephesians 4.26. Yes. What does it say? What does it say? It says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun set on something that I would say provokes your anger. Do not let the sun set on something that provokes Because hmm. I was looking, we were, so in our study we're, we're uh, talking about the armor of God, and one of the one of the questions or exercises that it has us do is to go and look at the things that Paul is telling you to put off. And she lists this verse. And when you're going through homework and you're not taking your time and you're rushing, you just write down being angry. But then we went back and looked at it, 
And it's not saying don't be angry. So we were trying to figure out. And so when I looked up that word where it says be angry, so that word for angry is like a... Yes, but the form that's being used there is a passive form. Yeah, don't let something cause you to be angry. Yeah. yeah. And it's an imperative on top of that, yes. But it doesn't say don't let something cause you to be angry. It says be angry, but don't sin. Right. And it doesn't say but, it says and. Right. Oh, but Kai can be but. Um, and oh. also. Be angry and do not sin. Yeah. My understanding of that is there's this only occurs a few times, and I think I have a note for a couple of them that I wrote in here. I understand this to be what we call an imperative of concession. It's like, okay, you're angry. Go ahead and be angry, but don't sin. It's almost like a tongue-in-cheek thing that Paul's kind of saying, like, let's just see you try to be angry and, and not sin. And, and the significance of this is, I think that's really important, is if you go down to verse 31, where he says, let all bitterness, and we have two words for anger. The first one's thumas, and the second one is orge. He repeats it there. He says, let all that be put away from you. So I don't think, I, I, I had a professor in seminary that used to understand the imperative in verse 26, like, there are things you should get angry about. And I don't think that that's what Paul's saying, because just a couple of verses later, he says, no. Let all that kind of anger go away. So I I do think that that's I do think that that's what we call an imperative of concession up there, saying, okay, let's just go go ahead and be angry. Let's just see how you let's see how you handle that. But when he says, do not let the sun go down on something that's provoking your anger, I think what he's saying is you need to settle. <clears throat> you shouldn't. This is what my dad always used to tell us. This was this was my dad's piece of marriage advice to almost everybody that ever got married, including me. He says, never go to bed angry. Mm -hmm. he, used to, to, he always used to say, and generally watching my parents and the way my dad handled things, I would say that probably was something he really endeavored to do. Every time I went to bed and we were angry at each other or one of us was angry at the other one, I always had an overwhelming sense of guilt because that was one of the things that my dad had always encouraged us with because I'm like, oh, it shouldn't be like this. It shouldn't be like this. But I, but the thing is, is I think like what he's saying, it, it, what my dad was saying is really what verse 26 is saying. It's not a good thing to, to go to bed holding on to something. You go to bed being angry, there's a good chance it's starting to turn into a grudge. That's the way I would understand that, interpretively. I don't, I don't know the verses for this, but then I think uh, Jim had taught on something about God's righteous anger, and only God has righteous anger. That's right. And does not. That's right. It could, because he says in, that, in James 1, man's anger does not produce God's righteousness. So that, that's something to remember, is that when, when people say, yeah, you should be angry. Well. Yeah. That verse, that verse was important for me, the one in James. And I don't remember a handful of years ago when we were going through, through, through James. I remember we had a long time because we had, we had some disagreements in that Bible study that night because there was a number of people that were like, oh, I think yeah. we ought to get angry once in a while. And I'm saying, all I can tell you is I can't think of a time that I've ever been angry in a spiritual way. <laughs> Every time I'm angry, 
it's always my flesh. And, and I think we were, we were going through James at that time. I was teaching through James and we said, and we were going through that. And we were at the Garnix that night. Remember we we're talking about this because it was, because they don't have ventilation in there and it was getting really hot. <laughs> I'm thinking that I'm like, because, oh, and people weren't angry, but you could just tell this was a, this was a real challenge to the way most of us have been raised to think. Yeah, and it was for me. It was a real hard thing. I spent a lot of time working on that study going, I don't want to stick my neck out on this, but these verses here and those and some other things, it was like, we are not communicating this right. So so a lot of times, so you're saying a lot of times when you get angry, you probably sin as a result of it. But aren't there times like you, you I mean, you get angry, yeah. but you don't sin. Oh yeah, well, I think yeah, I think you can. Yeah, you can. Yeah, anger isn't sin of sin. itself, but right. it can lead to sin. Yeah, right. but yeah. you can you can act unrighteously. Oh, I think still, being being angry would be un, could be unrighteous. Yeah, yes, yeah. Just just getting angry would be unright, but it, but it but, doesn't go the full path of being yeah, sin. Yeah, so just because you're sinning doesn't mean it's all okay. I right. mean, because you're not sinning. Yeah. Yeah. Did that I think so. kind of give you something to chew on with yeah. that? Okay.